We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. How do we fall in love? Is there a difference between what happens for men and for women? What if you're back dating after many years in a committed relationship? Is falling in love different in your 40s, 50s and 60s from when you were in your 20s and 30s? My witness today is Paul Dobransky, who is a psychiatrist with a particular interest in romance, dating, relationships, and the structure of the human character. He is also the author of The Secret Psychology of How We Fall in Love, Dr. Paul's Nine Proven Steps to Lasting Love. He's also in charge of several Substack newsletters on courtship, character, and men's psychology. So, Paul, what got you interested in this field? I think one of the things that got me interested is that I've always followed the development of new schools of psychology as they start you know, building ahead of steam. For example, the positive psychology of Dr. Martin Seligman, and now most recently within the British Psychological Society and Dr. John Barry and Dr. Martin Seeger's work on males in particular, how they have a somewhat different psychology from females. So I've always been interested in the frontiers of psychotherapy. Even though I'm a prescribing psychiatrist, I like to be complete in my professional development. So is there a difference between women's psychology and men's psychology beyond how we're socialized? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I subscribe as you know anybody worth their salt in behavioral health to the model called the biopsychosocial model. As you know, it's the most complete way of designing a treatment for people if they may need some medicines and psychotherapy or just psychotherapy alone, we need to use the biopsychosocial model for gathering all the variables together that contribute to a person's problems. So the biology, quickly stated, the biology is the medical part where a medicine is probably relevant and where they have a biological, genetically related process going on that's been inherited to some degree. And there's got to be a medicine involved with that. Then the psychology, which is probably the dominant portion that causes people's problems, has more to do with their upbringing, their life story, things they've experienced, especially traumas that have shaped some of their belief systems and then caused either more optimism or pessimism in them and adaptability and skills to get over problems that life throws them effectively. So for that, we need all kinds of personnel, a psychotherapist, a pastoral counselor might be involved if somebody has religious beliefs, the friends and family, the support systems around them that help their psychology are all relevant there. But then comes the third category of the biopsychosocial model, sociology. What we often miss in this model is that between the biology and psychology inside of us, and the outer world of all the various wild and woolly 
sociological processes that shift and change and turn on a dime. The world of sociology is outside of us, and what is between the two areas is a personal boundary. We all need solid, structured, personal boundaries to be able to navigate in the world as adults, and that personal boundary separates the inherent biology and psychology in us from whatever is happening sociologically outside of us. So I've come to believe that it is an an analytical error to see sociology as inherent in us. It's not in us, it's what's going on around us. It's the water we swim in, which is not the same as our body. So the personal boundary separates the two. The reason I'm saying all this is because you referred to Is there a difference between men and women behaviorally in a way that sociology somehow dictates? I just don't believe it has to dictate anything about what's going on inside an individual. Make sense? Yep. Yep. Most definitely. So you're not saying that it's sort of biological differences. They're much more cultural things. No, I'm saying that there are biological differences absolutely positively proven in the research, especially more recent years of research, there is a difference, but it is not the totality of what a female is or what a male is. It's just a subtle nuance to what you could say are their instincts, that there are masculine and feminine instincts throughout all cultures of the world, throughout probably all human history, that are evolutionary-based. And an interesting facet to how you can clearly see this if you're a clinician or somebody curious about the mind or about psychology, if you could combine Jungian psychology, which often has talked about archetypes, it's kind of a strange you know, word choice to define what really amounts to instincts. Carl Jung talked about masculine and feminine archetypes that exist throughout literature, myth, all history in every world culture. Similarly, so you'd have the king and the queen. You have father and mother archetypes, for example. Sure, or you have the Hephaestus archetype, which is probably the name of a, an instinct, which is an instinct in males for how they view work and how they they want to feel honored for work contributions they've made, or the similarity between what you could call the Zeus instinct. And the Hera instinct, the male and female twin godheads, the executives of ancient Greek mythology, Mount Olympus, they're equal in power, but yet they have nuances that are male or female in nature, the Zeus and the Hera. And a lot of stories and myths are either male or female orientated, and they have very clear roles. There's one of them we're going to talk about later. I'll just tell people what we're going to be talking about, the Ariadne myth. And I mean, I read that and I thought, my gosh, that is so interesting. I must, we must look into that. But anyway, let's go back to what we're saying. So we've got these Jungian ideas and we combine those with what? With evolutionary psychology, strangely, like very diverse, very different modes of therapy or understanding behavior. And yet they're very similar. They join in ways that as a young man, I was just thrilled to learn about myths and history and storytelling. I wanted to be a novelist at one time. And it's just thrilling to me that science can join literature in a valid way, that it can join mythology and folklore in a way that's actually practical and useful, I've come to believe. 
especially in this area of human courtship and romance. Because I think that probably when it comes to courtship, men are their most manly and women are probably at their most womanly. So it's a very good particular area to look at this. So how do men and women approach courtship differently? You know, one, uh, I guess, disclaimer I'd like to say right at the outset is nobody in our fields ought to exclude anybody seeking advice or help or trying for happiness in their lives. And so all the varieties of approach to gender and identity should all be respected. And the way that I feel that I can talk about males, females, masculine, feminine without offending is that all humans are forced to be on a bell curve of behavior. And so the middle of the bell curve is what I talk about the most and that we have to respect Otherwise, we don't have any rules or laws of anything to even help people with if we don't have an average or mean on a bell curve. But there being an average or mean on a bell curve doesn't mean there aren't people, very exceptional standard deviations out from that mean. Even though I don't talk frequently about the fringe of the fringe of that bell curve, I talk about the center of it, the mean. I don't want to exclude those who are seeking love which necessitates the need to express one's identity passionately. So I just want to say that at the outset. So how are males and females different in the approach to romance? The mean of the bell curves, let's say. Mm -hmm. There are, I believe, nine general steps to human courtship. And that's how I go into all the nuances and differences. The reason that I find there to be nine large general steps is something that goes back to honoring what you have heard of as the triune brain model of Dr. Paul McLean. Now, you could say this comes from evolutionary psychology. It's kind of a foundation of evolutionary psychology that we have these not three anatomical areas of the brain. That's obviously not true, but three general functions of the mind, one of which is the most primitive and you could say unconscious in the same way that Freud and Jung conceived of there being an unconscious. But evolutionists call it the reptilian brain. It's not really the brain like brain architecture or anatomy. It's really a part of the mind that is unconscious and instinctual based. That's the only place that I view males and females to have somewhat different and yet analogous function, Mm -hmm. the reptilian brain. Now, on top of that, there's the mammalian brain, which is like our limbic system. It's where the emotions function. And I believe that to be where friendship and love exclusively exist in the male and female mind. On top of that is what separates humans from all other species except perhaps dolphins, I hear, are very advanced cognitively. It's the cerebral cortex and the area of the conscious mind. And that's the exclusive area, I believe, humans to be set apart from other species and animals in terms of having forethought and future planning and executive function, and most important of all, character development. And it's our character development that is the peak of the peak of a lasting romantic relationship that you would call a partnership or someone fit for marriage in the old fashioned way that marriage was something desired by people. 
or what we might call being committed. Yes, a committed partner. And the purpose of commitment is neither love nor desire. The purpose of commitment, just like in medieval Europe, was to join forces between families and to join forces between two married partners so they could be more successful than they could be alone. It's about success as a team, raising children perhaps, or managing dual careers that are very weighty, or building a life, buying a home, establishing a family, securing future finances and retirement. These are all less passion-based, less love-based or friendship-based. They're about, do we make a better team together than alone? I'm hearing, let me check this out if I'm correct, the mammalian brain is doing the friendship part of a relationship. The higher part is doing the committed part. And so that probably means the reptile part is doing the lover's part. Am I right with all of that? It is. It's not just the sexual part per se. I never counsel people on actual sex or the sex act. I'm excluding the sex act from this. It's the feelings of wordless attraction and desire where you just so admire the other person and hold them higher than any other potential mate in the world and in which you can express your instinctual sense of masculinity and she can express her instinctual sense of femininity in a way that is like a power source for the relationship. The word I use is passion. For this. It sounds to me a little bit like what people call chemistry as well. Yes, there are so many synonyms for it. There's chemistry, there's charisma, and I think the most important word is passion. And I'll quickly explain why this is just an incredible word to look at linguistically. If you think about evolutionary psychology in its most simplistic form, as well as Jungian psychology, they talk about archetypes or instincts and how these archetypes or instincts are a power source for us. And even Freud joins in here with a terminology that's kind of strange and quirky, but the word libido is relevant. Today, libido has been tarnished by being considered to just be sexual appetite or something. What Freud's intent with the word libido was to mean is kind of like in Star Wars, it's the force. It's a feeling of vitality, viability, and excited to be alive and to wake up in the morning just excited to exist. That's libido. Yeah, I mean, I sometimes talk about it as energy. You know, do you have enough libido for this project? You know, do you actually really want to do it? Or does it just seem like a good idea? Because it needs to be more than a good idea. You need to have libido to drive it through. So I entirely get the idea that it's something more than just, you know, how sexual you feel. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look for synonyms, better synonyms for libido than that word, I arrive at the word passion for a very interesting reason. If I want to resolve Jung, Freud, and evolutionary psychology and make it a synthesis, make it in one model, how would I do that? I would have to look at the twin drivers that our instincts assist us with that the evolutionists would say are for the purpose of survival and reproduction, which is Darwinian, survival and reproduction. So you tell me one word in the English language you can think of that can only be used in these two modes for survival and for reproduction. It would be the word passion. Why? Because there are only two ways the word passion is ever used. 
It's used, of course, to refer to romantic desire. We all know that. But we also use the word passion as in my passion project, my life's passion. I'm putting passion into my work. So the word passion is also used not just for romance or sexual desire. It's used for my sense of being alive on a spectrum between life and death, actually, because there is the use of the word passion in terms of the passion plays about Christ's death, which is not a romance. It's about a death, (laughs) you know, or a crime of passion. What is a crime of passion? Well, it's murder. So it's about death. So the spectrum between fully living, excited to be alive, all the way down to feeling deadened or depressed. And then the other use is romantic. So men and women and passion, don't they both get hot and heavy? Well, they ought to if they're going to move on to the next phase beyond just being lovers or beyond just having a hookup. If they don't have that in the first place, because of the reptilian brain instinctual processes, they probably won't move on to phase two of courtship, which is friendship and love. Love doesn't have to and doesn't always exist in sexual desire. They're two separate things. You can have sexual desire and not feel love or friendship. And you can also feel love or friendship for somebody for whom you don't have sexual desire, but you're not likely to marry that person or have a long-term romantic relationship with that person. So desire, love, and commitment are three separate processes of the brain attuned to the triune brain model. So what is different in men and what is different in women? Men and women are exceptionally similar in the mammalian-brained emotions of friendship and love, certainly in the committed phase, higher-brain portion of are we good partners, are we great at our careers, our IQs are equivalent. Where they are different is in the desire, passion, reptilian brain part. I believe that's where our sense of masculinity and femininity reside. But walk me through what, how you see those differences, because I'm, I'm not quite actually seeing it. What happens on the ground, so to speak? Sure. Well, there's massive ground to cover. I'll try to summarize. I mean, there's a lot of research from the evolutionary psychologists about how the differences in the number of gametes, there being billions and billions of sperm versus two to 300 viable eggs over the reproductive lifespan leads to different unconscious instinctual motives and strategies unconsciously used by females and males in their early courtship, their early dating. And so males can, they used to say, spread the seed widely where they may pursue various women simultaneously or sequentially and not feel a great sense of risk to that. And females are far, far more selective about the suitors, the males they'll even consider dating, based on their character, their boundaries, their future potential as a mate and as a partner and as a friend. So that's one difference, where males instinctually might not care as much about the character and friendship potential of the women they date in early dating. Females care greatly about the higher qualities of the male. We're starting to see that come out only in the past month or so. Writers are writing out there, for example, in the Atlantic Monthly just last week, they're writing about something they're calling heroic masculinity as an alternative to toxic masculinity. It's fascinating. 
So tell me about heroic masculinity then. That sounds rather good. It does. I think it's in the general correct direction of what I'm talking about by there being positive, useful, pro-social, societally beneficial uses of the masculine instincts and the feminine instincts. What they're positing with this writing about heroic masculinity is that it can't just be that all males on the entire planet are all toxic. In fact, it's an utter misnomer to even use the word toxic next to an immutable inborn trait. It doesn't make sense to call an immutable inborn trait toxic because the word toxic actually means narcissistic. And all human beings have some narcissism, at least a little. So we're all guilty of, quote, toxicity. People are fed up and tired of it because it's a dead end to people finding the love and passion and partnership they all need, no matter what their background. So instead of just calling everything toxic, by saying heroic masculinity, what they're starting to lead toward is, what are the positive uses of these masculine instincts? And the writer in The Atlantic last week talked about the example of 9-11 and the Terrorist Act in New York, where there were firefighters who probably knew they were going to die or suspected it, and they went in any way to try to save lives and did save lives. What they're calling heroic masculinity is saying, look, that was not toxic. That was not narcissistic. It was sacrificial and uniquely male. By and large, the total number of males who ran in there to save lives and then died were male. And it was driven by masculine instincts. You know, if you want me to give a second example that you maybe not have not heard of, Dr. Martin Seeger from the British Psychological Society, a research partner of Dr. John Barry, Martin Seeger writes about the Titanic as a very clear example that masculine instincts exist and can be used incredibly positively. In that, he analyzed the psychosocial demographics of all of the passengers of the Titanic. And so there were economic differences, right? There were wealthy people, male and female. There were middle-class males and females. And there were lower-class economic males and females. And well over 90%, I forget the exact percentage, but 90% plus of those who died were male of any economic demographic, meaning the wealthy males were willing to die to save females and children. And demographics didn't matter. Economics didn't matter. It was inherent in their reflex response to the sudden sinking of the ship. And by and large, those who were poor economically, female or children, were saved and were willing to be saved by those males. It's an incredible example because it's so dramatic as well as science-based for Seeger to use this as an example that Masculine instincts can be used positively to provide and protect. And that's one of the cardinal instincts he has discovered along with Dr. John Barry. So you're talking about three phases of courtship, the attraction phase, the bonding phase, and the commitment phase. So tell me about those. Yes. So these are analogous to the three areas of the triune brain model. So the attraction phase is the first of three phases. They come together almost like a literary story. It's like the story of our love, the story of our romance in three acts. So act one, sexual desire, 
the unconscious expression of the masculine and feminine instincts is often wordless and unconscious. The males and females don't realize they're doing these things and they're not doing them on purpose. They're doing them just by going with their gut, going on instinct. And it's early dating where females show up and they appear their healthy best and they're visually appealing to the males. And this is another evolutionary principle that from hunter-gatherer society days, males, because of their muscularity, would tend to be the hunters and would go out risking their lives to get meat to bring back to the village. And they had to be very visually oriented to spot prey, to spot danger. So the visual is highlighted in the masculine instincts, whereas the feminine aspect of this, the gathering part, would be protecting the village, protecting the children, gathering the grain for the winter, being detailed in accounting for it all. Because what if the village dies over the winter for the lack of an exact amount of needed food stored and saved? So the females are more conservative instinctually in their approach to the males in the environment, where they're going to be very detailed and picky and choosy about the traits in the male. So the male is visual and the female is more sensual or emotional based, less visual about the appeal of the males in the environment in early dating. And it's through three, I believe, three steps that males and females go through in this first phase that they eventually arrive at the second phase. And I could tell you where I get the three steps. The British National Gallery in Trafalgar Square in London has an incredible painting by Tiwadl, who painted a depiction of the story of Paris of Troy, where Paris was confronted by Zeus with having to choose between three female gifts, let's say, from three goddesses who got into a fight, who got into a, an argument over who's the best goddess. I won't go into the details of that story, but the three goddesses were Aphrodite, Hera, and Athena. Aphrodite, Hera, and Athena. And Paris of Troy was to choose between the three. We all know he ended up choosing Aphrodite's gift, which was the hand of Helen of Troy, the face that launched a thousand ships. The most beautiful woman in the world. The most beautiful woman in the world. And so her attribute was not meant to be stereotypical, sociologically abhorrent, an insult to women. It was meant to show that the top choice of the most brilliant, handsome, rich bachelor in the world, Paris of Troy, which was wise of Zeus to choose instead of choosing himself. He said, no, don't come to me with your fight. Go to the most handsome, rich, successful man in the world. That's the appropriate one to judge between you three. And he chose the visual beauty of Aphrodite's gift, Helen. Well, the visual beauty is not meant to mean who's the hottest girl. It's meant to say who's the healthiest woman. Health, physically, genetic potential of our offspring, according to the evolutionary psychologists, can be seen in symmetry. Symmetry of the body, symmetry of the face, suggests as a sign, reproductive viability sign, suggests future healthy offspring because the genetic robustness resists asymmetry developing in the body or the face. 
And so beauty is not just cosmetics and fashion. Beauty is health by way of symmetry of the face and body. So that's the first step of courtship for males and females. It's the Aphrodite as the choice. But the reason I realized there's more than just one step to sexual attraction and desire is from this painting and this story of Paris and the three goddesses, looking at this painting for a very long time, I started thinking, well, there are two other goddesses. Doesn't that mean there are two other major, major universal feminine attributes of desire? There must be. So the second one is Hera, who offered Paris dominion over all the world's property. In other words, he would own everything. She was promising him essentially wealth. And power as well. Wealth and power. And how does this reflect down to street level in today's dating? You know, it's not just a wealthy woman is appealing. That's clearly not the case for most males, by the way. What it symbolizes is what we have lost in our current sociology in the word toxic masculinity is males will greatly desire you as a female if you simply tell them their attributes that you admire. If you find in yourself something admirable about a male, thus this current term heroic masculinity, it's admirable for those firefighters to sacrifice their lives. If females will choose something about the male they genuinely admire that's unique to him and tell him so, it makes him feel like what we used to say, feel like a million bucks. Today, it probably needs to be a billion bucks, but you made me feel like the only man in the world. So it's the hierarchical choice that Hera chooses the male as the top hierarchical male, better than any other man. I must be worthwhile because you say I am. Well, it's that I am just stunned by being honored by you choosing me over all other males. I am so grateful and respectful and thrilled that you would choose me over other males. So there's a third feminine quality that men admire. So tell me about that. Yes. And this is step three of sexual attraction before we get to emotional attraction. The third step of sexual attraction, the tables turn on the male. This is probably the biggest reason males fail in early dating. It's that Athena comes along third, and she is the goddess of war, but also of wisdom. She's the representative of females' instincts toward, let's try diplomacy first before fighting. That's the wisdom along with war. And so what Athena's instinct does for females is, if they're going to start to date regularly, and this is going to turn into a relationship or situationship or whatever you want to call it, there is great risk to the female in terms of if she chooses wrong or a male likely to betray her, leave her, abandon her, use her, the stakes are very high for her. So the evolutionists talk about this in terms of relative numbers of gametes in the sexes. So Athena tests the male. So, so far, they've been visually attracted. They feel desire. They let each other know they like each other and prefer each other over all other potential partners. But now the woman must test the male to be sure that he is the real deal, that he is a solid, high-character male, not just a sexy, attractive male. So the Athena instinct in females naturally 
puts him to a test that the woman probably isn't knowing she's doing it on purpose, but she does it anyway, instinctually, to see, is he willing to betray his friends for her? That would be low character of him. Is he willing to go right for sex and not invest in a potential romance and relationship? That's low character. Is he willing to cheat or steal or be lazy in his career, not work on himself? Does he have poor boundaries? More than anything else, it's tests of his boundaries. Is he able to be a solid person true to his word? Does he keep his promises? Does he show up on time for a date? Does he have his wallet with him? You know, is he going to be gentlemanly and pay for things and be a high character, upstanding gentleman? Or is he just putting on kind of a facade of that? The Athena instinct tests this and pokes and prods at the male. And his way of passing these tests is to A, maintain his masculine sense of dignity and B, display true authentic character, good morality and character when faced with dilemmas. A dilemma over my mom just called and she's sick versus, wow, you're so attractive, I want to still do our date. He should choose his mom and cancel the date. And ironically, in his mind, he might think, oh no, I canceled the date and she's not going to like me anymore because I canceled. But if she knew that you canceled because your mom is sick, she'll love that. It'll be highly attractive to her. That's the Athena instinct. If she believes you, that you're just not using this as a terrible excuse. So do you think in our the original courtship, because if we're looking at so these biological things, being able to reproduce is incredibly important in your 20s and 30s. But if you're dating again in your 50s and 60s, then reproduction is not on the table. Do different goddesses come more to the fore when we come to later life, do you think? Or is it exactly the same? There are many, many more gods and goddesses in the myths and the literature that have yet to be correlated with the science and discovered by the evolutionary psychologists. There are at least 12 major ones for males and females as far as the Greek literature is concerned. So yes, other ones do come to the fore later in life, in middle age and beyond. However, the initial interactions between males and females in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s still must involve some kind of display of healthfulness by the woman, which might be more psychological. It might be, wow, what a wonderful old soul this woman is. And that's appealing to the male. There also will be notification to each other that they are liked and preferred over other suitors. And then there will be testing by the female of the male to be sure that he is a good, solid, high-character man who would be a good partner. So those three instincts still must be displayed. But then from there, the richness of what happens between the 40, 50, 60-something couple is going to be richer for all of that life's experience where, like the canon of Shakespeare, they have gone through so many life scenarios, traumas, tribulations and solved problems heroically and have lived so much life that all these other gods and goddesses, as far as representing instincts, will also come more to the fore. So while we're on the subject of goddesses and, well, we're not a goddess, but a myth, this one I've been really thinking about over the last couple of days. So we've got Ariadne's 
read. And this can teach us a lot about keeping a love alive for both men and women. So Ariadne, we're with the Minotaur. I think we're on Crete, aren't we? So tell us about the story. I think that story is a great, great example of what you were talking about in middle age and later in life, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. As an example of a conundrum, males and females of any age tend to run into with each other. It has to do with the balance of career versus my love relationship. How much do I devote to the family and family living or to the coupledom versus aggressiveness in my career as a male or a female? I think the Ariadne myth explains it. In short, what happens is Theseus is a young man in Athens and King Minos of Crete has uh, won a war and demanded that to end the war, the Greeks must send, I believe, seven males and seven females every year to die at the hand of this monstrous minotaur. And the minotaur is the offspring of King Minos and a bull. Um, (laughs) So it's a grotesque monster that lives in a maze. And every year, seven males and females must go into the labyrinth and die at the hand of the Minotaur. Well, Theseus is fed up with this arrangement and agrees to be a hero and go and kill the Minotaur. So he meets King Minos and says, I am here to end this war agreement. You're no longer going to take seven ladies and males from our society every year. I will kill your Minotaur. And as he's telling King Minos, throwing down the gauntlet here, Minos's daughter, Ariadne, is observing and falls in love with this young enemy of her father, which perfectly fits the Oedipus period of life from Freud of a female, where the female falls in love with a male who has the bravery and heroism similar to her daddy. Someday she will fall in love with an adult male. So Ariadne is in love with Theseus now, and she secretly meets with him before the morning he is to go try to kill the Minotaur in in the labyrinth. And she professes her love and offers him a golden thread that is so tiny it can't be seen with the naked eye, but it is made of gold. And he is to carry it with him all through the labyrinth until he gets to the point of fighting the Minotaur. Why does she do this? What does it psychologically represent? It represents a feminine tendency to be caregiving to the lover and simultaneously a masculine tendency while fighting wars, being on the hunt, which today is us being in our careers, where we need the privacy, separation, and distance from the lover while doing the dangerous tasks like saving lives in 9-11 by the firefighters or being a hero in battle, we need to go put our minds solely on the hunt, but still know that a woman cares, still know that we are loved and adored and admired and supported from afar while we're doing these tasks. That's the golden thread. But we don't want her going and killing the Minotaur for us, do we? No, if she came and wasn't even in the way or in our path, if she came and was a strong, fierce warrior fighting next to us, we would be distracted. Even if she's an incredible warrior herself, we'd be distracted because we love her. We don't want her to be put at risk. We want to be the one to kill our own monsters in our career, which is to make our career successes for her benefit 
but from afar, so there's no distraction. Nothing against her, but we just can't multitask. We got to focus on our one goal of the day. But if there's no thread, and here is the incredible life-saving gift of the feminine instinct of Ariadne, if Theseus doesn't have that tiny golden thread on his person, even if he does kill the Minotaur, he will never find his way out of the maze. It's that thread that leads him out of the maze. And that is the pure feminine gift to the male, without which he will die, which symbolically means he will fail at career. He will fail to become something. So how does this work in practice? Well, simply reading the story of the myth gives a a storytelling way that our minds understand, oh, that's how it works between males and females as far as career. That's what the female gives. Just knowing that is a great start. And using that story as a metaphor would be a way for couples to discuss and explain that the male's distance while he's in his career day, his job day, his lack of texting, his lack of calling, his lack of communication doesn't intend to harm the woman's sense of dignity and value to him. It's just that he's trying to kill the minotaur. But if the woman were to offer him that thread of connection, knowing its value to him is actually life-saving to him, which just means his sense of excitement about the relationship and about his life is maintained simply by the small things a woman might do to encourage him, even from afar. And so knowing that somebody believes in you is incredibly important. So contempt, so, you know, sometimes there can be contempt between couples. I mean, it might even just be something at home, you know, you're rubbish, you don't know how to change the child's nappy properly, or you're not putting them in the right clothes, etc. And there's that feeling of contempt that breaks the golden thread, doesn't it? It does. Uh, you know, contempt in the sense of John Gottman's work on couples counselling that contempt is the worst thing that couples can feel toward each other, and it does lead to divorce. What you bring me to is actually 25 years of trying to refine an answer to a question I often get, which is, sum up, what is the most powerful thing that a woman can say to a man or a man could say to a woman? What's the most powerful principle between these two sexes? And here's what I arrive at after 25 years. I arrive at it because I've had large groups of males and females for lectures, for education on all these matters over all these years. And I always ask the males a question toward the end of the lecture. I ask them if ever in their life, other than from their own mother, had they ever heard a woman tell them, I believe in you. And without fail, every single seminar, there is soft crying in the back of the room of males. Why? Because a large, large proportion of males have never heard the phrase, I believe in you from a woman other than their mother. I'm proud of you. That's powerful too. Yes. Very similar. And I think what that is, is the male Oedipal period of life. It's the feelings toward the mother, the life-giving words from the mother to the infant and toddler son are you are wonderful and I believe in you and I can't wait to see what you are like when you're grown. I believe in your potential and also what you are worth to me 
is immeasurable. That's what the male is hearing. And there is a similar parallel one that the female hears from the male after all these years. And what is that? Because I would have guessed that what the men wanted to hear. I've no idea what the, what the women want to hear. Well, you'll instantly recognize from the female Oedipal period of life where the daughter falls in love with the daddy, the prime trait of the daddy that is loving and kind and generous and just life-giving to the daughter are the words, everything's going to be all right. I will take care of it. Everything's going to be all right. No matter how rich the female is as an adult. Okay, well, we're going to take a pause. When we come back, we're going to look at a letter and we're going to continue our conversation. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So here is a letter that's been sent in. I've read two of your books, but there's little a mention of affairs when in the 60s. I think it changes the dynamic. Why should you put all this work to rescue the relationship? Why not just accept that you're unlikely to have another partner and live in your own, surrounded by friends and family? It's certainly better than finding someone you just get to nurse but without the history. How do relationships change when we're in our 60s? I mean, there's some anger here, most definitely. What do you think this tells us about the relationships between men and women? And do you think she's right that actually an affair in the sick when you're in your 60s is more devastating than at other times? Oh, I, I think what I'm hearing in part, you correct me if I'm wrong, is if somebody does something very wrong in the process of courtship, does that mean that the relationship has to end and that that's the only option and the two should just move on, in which case there are less total days, hours, and years in life left to that person. If we get honest, they're not going to live forever. So the cost is much higher to the relationship ending Mm. because there's less time in which to find another mate, another love interest. So I, I hear that bitterness in the letter, but I think it's optional. I think if a person decides that's too much for me, that there's too much work to save that relationship, I don't have that many years left. It's their perfect right to do so. But I would hope they would do so with a optimistic hopefulness for a future of love with someone else. And I don't hear that in the letter. The other alternative is anything can be understood as to its causes. And then apologies, genuine, genuine apologies could be offered and could be supported with proof that they are valid and legitimate. And then forgiveness could occur. Because what I'm sort of almost hearing is the woman saying, actually, I've had enough of relationships or sexual relationships. I just want to be on my own. And that's a perfectly valid choice, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But it often seems to me that that's a choice that women make in later life more than men make in later life, but that actually if a man and a woman are bereaved at the same age, say in their mid-60s, 
The women very seldom find a new relationship. The men often find a new relationship within six months and are married straight away again. It's almost like they can't function without a woman, but a woman can function without a man. What do you think? I think the Ariadne and Theseus story is quite relevant for part of that scenario, that the male dies without that tiny golden thread Mm. from the woman. And what I would join it with is the concept of, if you think about the gametes, the eggs and the sperm, and you, and you think about how that plays into psychology over the lifespan, if you had to boil down to just one word, what is the purpose of a female? and What is the purpose of a male? I sometimes have pondered the idea that women are about birth and males are about death Ooh. in this way. Yeah. That's <laughs> Women deep. are about birth. And I'll try to get to why I would even consider that. Women are about birth, not just biologically, they can have children, right? But they give birth to ideas, movements, charities, benefits, actual children, or companies like Oprah formed a company that was like family to her. Females create. A lot of female artists, for example. Yes. Yes. So they give birth to new things in the world. Males are about death in a certain kind of way because they care more instinctually about what they have produced with their life in death than they do still living. It's the core of what they're calling this heroic masculinity. If they're using the example of heroism being sacrificing your life to save others, Well, clearly those males' instincts more highly valued, if you will, certainty about dying in exchange for saving a life or more than one life. So males are about death and females are about birth in this sense. So returning to the letter, I've just got sort of, I suppose, two things to say. First and foremost, apologizing for not uh, looking at different age is and how old you are when the um, infidelity happens. I think that's a, a very good point, and maybe I'll have to write an article on that at some point. And I think that you're right, it is different. And if you decide you don't want to have any more relationships, that's perfectly fine. But why do you feel the need to write to me about it? So I'm wondering, and we'll have Shakespeare this time rather than myths, the lady doth protest too much. And this is Hamlet, by the way, if you're interested. So you're really, really angry about it. And the reason you're angry is because you still have some attachment to the idea of a committed relationship, either with your partner or with somebody else. At front, you're saying, why should I blooming well bother after everything that's happened to me? But actually, a deeper part of you is saying, I'm hurt. I do want to have love and connection and nurturing, not just from my friends and family, but from somebody who puts me at number one, somebody who says, I've got it, so to speak. So I think that there might still be some attachment to this idea. And as I say, the lady does protest too much. I'll leave you to think about that. 
So I have to say thank you very much, Paul, for for joining me today on The Meaningful Life. In a moment, we'll continue on the subject of power imbalances in relationships. But to hear about that material, you have to subscribe to our bonus material. I'll tell you about that as a second. But before we finish this part, I need to ask you, Paul, as a witness on The Meaningful Life, what makes your life meaningful? Mm, I think what makes my life meaningful more than anything, is that the work I've done, the pains I went through to even qualify to do the work, that if it matters to somebody as a unique gift from me, that if it were somebody else, it would just would not have been the same for the person, that they felt happier because of it in a way that they continue to remember over the course of their life, that gives me the most meaning. So it's probably generativity, giving, giving to the next generation or giving to others, whether that's my wife, my young son, my patients, my community. It's what gives me most of the value in being a person here. And I think struggling through medical school, there is a certain hero's journey there, isn't there? Oh, it was horrible, horribly difficult. A lot of sacrifices and losses. So power imbalance in relationships and how they cause fights. If you want to hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material, this way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.